Amen. And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. And as Joe and Cynthia both mentioned, Matthew 23 is a challenging chapter. And in this whole section, Jesus is acting as the mighty prophet who's coming to bring God's authoritative word and his critique of the religious leaders that he's going to attack is that they're diverting people, keeping people from him, and then they're keeping people from the kingdom of God. But multiple commentators have looked at this chapter and one has said that the pitch of this prophetic critique is so high that it seems impossible that Jesus would even say these words. And one particular British commentator said that this is the most unchristian chapter in the whole Bible. And another in typical British fashion said this is the most unlovely chapter in all of the Gospels. And so let's actually hear more of it so we can feel the unloveliness. Starting at 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside will be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear, uh, outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you is full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth." From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And so it's a challenging passage, but one of the things I hope to show us is that I disagree that it's the most unlovely of all of the chapters in the Gospels. I think you can see multiple things. One, structurally, it's beautiful. And I give you an outline so you can kind of see how it's structurally put uh, together. Spiritually, it's powerful. And for any person who has ears to hear, it's incredibly convicting. And if we allow Jesus' words to do their work of the master surgeon, it can amputate the sin in our own hearts that seeks to destroy us. So let's look, and we're going to spend this morning just look at the introduction in verses 1 through 12, because here Jesus sets up kind of two ways, the false way and then the true way. So you heard Joe read this earlier, but let's go back to 23, starting in verse uh, 2. The scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. And so the first thing that he's going to critique, all right, what's the problem? Because this is a passage that's very easy to look at and say, all right, let's look at those people. Those people out there, those hypocrites, they're out there and not see that this can be a mirror that doesn't just critique those who are out there, but can critique the one who's in here. And so their problem, uh, well, first notice how he wants them to respect the chair. He says they sit in Moses' seat. So what that's a reference to, it was kind of it was kind of Jewish myth probably, but the idea was that when Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai and went into God's presence to receive the law for 40 days, that he had a chair that he sat in and he kind of took down the law. And then when he came down, he came with his chair and he sat down and everybody sat under him and he gave them uh, the law. And so in all synagogues, temple, when somebody who uh, was speaking as an authoritative representative of that place, they would sit in the chair and speak. Like maybe if you grew up Catholic and you've ever heard the phrase when the Pope speaks ex cathedra. So he's sitting in the chair of authority. And this actually is how all people like in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh centuries used to experience church. So like in Augustine, St. Augustine, his church, uh, you'd have a big seat up on top of this thing, and he would sit in it. It was the bishop's chair. And then everybody else in the congregation would be standing. And it was the preacher who was sitting. So you see how kind we are. We've reversed scenarios, and we give all of you chairs, and we're the ones up here uh, standing. But it was reversed. And the idea was I, they, they sit in a seat of authority. And notice what Jesus does. He says, you need to recognize their authority. He doesn't negate the office. He just wants to purify it of its problems. And he says, you should listen to them because they're telling you the right thing. But the problem is they don't practice what they preach. The problem is not the content of their preaching. It's the, uh, their lifestyle, how they're living. You notice what they're, they're doing. They will heap burdens that they will put on others, but they won't labor to lift them themselves. And this really is the hallmark of bad leadership in any scenario or any situation. They're not willing to do the things that they demand others to do. And one incredible story that kind of paints the opposite picture of this is the story of Lewis and Clark. So, you know, Meriwether Lewis is kind of the, the, the hero of the story, but he often doesn't get the... Uh, Praise that I think he is due, uh, especially in the textbooks. But uh, one of his central leadership maxims that he was going to live by was this, this idea that he will never ask anyone to do something that he hasn't already done first. So you kind of think about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, you know, he was uh, he was the aristocrat. He was the one who had the relationship with Thomas Jefferson. He was the one who was funding the expedition out of his own pocket. He was the one that went in front of Congress to get it um, authorized. He put his reputation on the line. He handpicked the kind of 41 people who would go uh, with him. They had no idea how long it was going to take. They ended up traveling over 2,000 miles from St. Louis to the Pacific Northwest. West, and kind of their uh, journey is this remarkable illustration of just incredible leadership and overcoming difficulties. They spent the first winter in Mandan, North Dakota. Now, I've never been to Mandan, North Dakota. I don't know if any of you have, but I hear that it's one of the coldest places in the northern hemisphere. 
and they got stuck there for their entire first winter. Um, they encountered grizzly bears, hailstorms, and tornadoes, and those were the easy days. They got stuck in the Wind River Range, which is one of the steepest, rug most rugged parts of North America, and they had to carry all of their canoes through this ravine. Um, they had to figure out that they had to navigate the only river in all of the northern hemisphere that flows from the south to the north. They ran into one of the fiercest Native American tribes who wanted to kill all of them. And these are the things that uh, Lewis is having to navigate his team through. And what's remarkable is there were over 12 men on the team who all kept journals. And universally, they say that over the two years, there was never any mutiny and there was never any major or even minor disruptions. And you, know, you hear that and it's just amazing. Like, I can't take six people to dinner without there being at least minor <laughs> disputes and disruptions. And you look at the floor at where we go to dinner and you would think there was a major explosion and disruption. And then here he is navigating this nearly impossible journey and everyone seems to get along. And he had one principle. I will never ask anyone to do anything that I haven't already done first. And if you think about it, if you think that's amazing, then you think about what your savior has done for you. So if you're a Christian here this morning, then one of the beautiful things about our Savior is he will never ask us to do anything more than what he's already done for us. He is the great burden bearer, not the great burden giver. And no matter how patient like you will be called to be, you will never be more patient with that boss, neighbor, son, daughter, husband, cat. You'll never be more patient with them than Christ has already been with you. And no matter how kind you're called or have to be, you'll never be kinder to another than he's already been kind to you. You will never suffer longer for others than what he's suffered for you. You will never sacrifice for another more than what he has already sacrificed for you. And so the beauty of our Savior is that he doesn't do these things. So maybe if you get dis disillusioned, like the problem was the religious leader's hypocrisy. And people were looking around and very easy to become cynical and jaded. And he says, no, you look to me. Look to me. And one thing I find really fascinating is just notice, like, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is not going to get any of them off the hook. He says, they tell you, they sit in Moses' seats and they speak to you and you, you have to listen to them. It's very easy to kind of look at the hypocrisy that you see in, around you and say, oh, well, I don't have to. I will allow their bad behavior to justify my bad behavior. And that's not going to get you off the hook. Jesus says they sit in Moses' seat, so you got to listen to him. Just don't follow their life. So their first problem is that they preached, but they didn't practice. You see that verse 3? But then their next problem is one. Look in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This to be seen is the same word that runs all the way through to be a hypocrite, hypocrite. That's a theater mask. So they do all that they do to make theater. It's all a stage. It's all a show. It's all a performance. 
And that's what he's condemning. And then Jesus, you know, he gives us beautiful, he gives us six illustrations of their vainglory. And then he couples them in three groups of two. So the first little group is, notice they enlarge their phylacteries and then they make their fringes long. Say, what is that? Right, so a phylactery was a, um, was a box where you would, have, uh, you would have this ornate scribe would write into the box different Bible verses, and then you would wear them either on your forehead or on your hand or sometimes on your chest, and it was giant boxes with Bible verses written in them. And the idea is that they're taking literally, maybe a little too literally, God's command in Deuteronomy 6, where he says, you're going to write my word. It's going to be written on your forehead. It's going to be written in your heart. It's going to be inscribed on your hands. And so they were literally writing the Bible on their forehead so people could see and making it as big as possible to demonstrate how serious or how committed they are. I mean, it's kind of like if you got like Jesus saves tattoo on your forehead, like you're making a statement with that. And they were making a statement. And then the fringes, there was this idea from the, some different pharisaical sects would compete about which, who had the longest fringes to their garments. So the idea was that the four fringes, you know, your four limbs, and they, they would be blue and they would represent the four corners of the earth. So God's word going to the four corners of the earth. And the idea is the, the longer you had your fringes, the more committed you were to the word going to the ends of the earth. And it was turned into just ostentatious display. I mean, that's what Jesus is attacking. They're using these clothes not to, but it's to bring themselves undue attention. And if you don't think we live in a world that uses clothing for ostentatious display, I thought about bringing pictures from this year's Oscars. But I didn't know if it'd be appropriate to show in church with the kids in here. So this is what Jesus is critiquing. And then you notice the next in three and four, he says they love the seats of honor in church and then in social settings and dinner. When they love to come in, they love the seats of honor to be noticed, to be praised, to be seen, to walk down the red carpet. And then they love the greetings of honor, both uh, church and world in uh, the next two. And so the problem is that they're using their religious vocation to seek worldly glory. They're using it for their own social standing, status, wealth. And then Jesus critiques, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. And what's really challenging for anyone who's, you know, it's one of the occupational hazards of being in religious employment. Because the way Jesus critiques them, he par this parallels with the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 6 and then this are parallel. Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, how you should live. This whole section is how you should not live. And in Matthew 6, he's challenging them and says, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray in public. They love to be seen doing these things, like public prayers. And Jesus actually uses prayer as a way to examine your heart to see where it is, if whether you're a hypocrite or not. And so they were motivated to pray publicly because of the social situation or because it was uh, expected or it brought them certain prestige in the community, but you think about all right, what, what motivates me to really pray? Am I motivated by the anxiety that's caused by troubling circumstances? When the marriage is rocky, the rent is late, the kids are going astray, those are really good times to pray. But if those are the only times you pray, 
then we're in a similar boat. Genuine love for the Lord motivates it at all times. See, the problem is they wanted to appear to others as someone or something different than they really were. And I think if every person in this room is honest with themselves, you understand that temptation. And that's one of the things that social media has done is just pour fuel on the fire to craft an image and a persona that's different than who I really am. See, the real challenge that Jesus gives is, all right, how do you act when no one is watching? Because in reality, there's never a moment when no one is watching. And so we all want to be perceived as positive, cheerful, people who have life figured out, good leaders, good bosses, good moms, good dads, good this, good that. And if you've been around Christians for more than about 10 minutes, you can learn the lingo of how to speak about the blessings of the Lord. But then the question is, is there any truth there? Is there any life there? See, their problem that he's critiquing is there was this deep mismatch between who they projected themselves to be and who they really were. And that's why they covered themselves. You know, all of the ostentatious uh, clothing, the obnoxious clothing was an attempt to cover themselves and divert attention from who they really were. And if we're honest, everyone fears to some degree being exposed. We're all using something to try and cover. You know, some people live in constant fear that they'll be uncovered. And so we cultivate relational styles that work really well at keeping people at arm distance and projecting a certain image. And we know how to guard our hearts and we know how to hide our faults, terrified that someone will see and know. And what Jesus is critiquing is this elaborate and expensive shame covering project. And then in verse eight, he's going to shift and say, let me show you a more excellent way. Like, you do not have to live so paralyzed and so bound to everyone else's opinion and expectation and uh, sense of your worth. Let me show you a more excellent way. Look in verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And neither being called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbled himself will be exalted. See, Jesus is undercutting that desire, that anxious desire to seek out acclaim and honor and prestige. You know, as long as your self-worth is dependent on what you're receiving from people out here, it's always going to be fragile. And what Jesus is showing is that there's a better way. Like you actually don't need to worry whether you're getting honor and praise from the people around you. You don't have to scramble and fight for the positions of honor because you have a heavenly father who knows you and loves you. You don't need to assert yourself to try and be on top because I'm already on top and you have me. You can have me. You don't have to be so touchy over all of these perceived slights and you're being snubbed and you're being ignored because you have your father's approval. You have the Christ. And you don't have to argue about these titles. He gives three different titles. One is like doctor, teacher, doctor. The other one is father. That's a family context. Like I'm the, the head of the household. And then the other instructor is not the greatest translation. It's actually leader. 
So you have to be the leader. You're the one leading. He says, you don't need any of these titles. You're all brothers. You have one father and you have the Christ. You have me. And so what it does is kind of frees them from this unnecessary burden of having to keep up this good image and this good reputation. Because if we're honest, it's too big of a burden and now it's unnecessary. You don't have to do it. Kind of reminds me that idea of too big of a burden and now kind of unnecessary. Makes me think of my man Sam back there in the orange shirt who's skipping on down the... He, uh, when he was four and we were getting ready for our last hurricane, uh, he came out and he was going to help me in our hurricane preparation uh, task. And if you spend much time around four-year-old boys, you know that often their help is, can be good intended, but not always very effectual. And he started asking, he's like, all right, like, Daddy, the wind was really blowing. And he says, like, is the storm going to blow our house away? I was like, well, I mean, I hope not. <laughs> Maybe. And then he, uh, he goes up to the garage and starts pushing on the garage and just starts pushing it. And he's like, Ugh. he's like, don't worry, I won't let it blow us away. And I was like, my man, yes. And then I started thinking, all right, well, should I let him just keep doing that? Because I mean, it's not actually doing anything at all to the house, but he could get a nice isometric workout and maybe he'll wear himself out and we might get a nap out of the deal. So yeah, keep going. You hold up the house. It's a burden you don't have to bear and you really can't do it anyway. And this is a burden. You know, we can be the problem with the Pharisees that Jesus is attacking is that they were so self-absorbed and self-consumed. They were utterly in, uh, inattentive and indifferent to those people around them. And what he wants to do is set us free. Set us free from that self-absorption. Set us free from having to try and build up a life based on our own glory. It's too big of a burden. And now it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. He says, what have I done Look to what I've done for you. This week, as I was thinking about the, the, you know, the way they would use their clothes and the different things we use to try and cover ourselves and uh, to divert attention, and I was thinking how these things are just not necessary any longer. And I was reminded about Romans 8 and the end of Romans 8. And Eli, pull up the end of Romans 8 because there's some powerful questions that Paul is going to culminate this great section of the letter where it's like if these questions can really land on you, it can free you from that prideful sense of trying to uh, be so concerned about how you're being perceived by those around you. Look at 8.31, what shall we say to these things? Paul summarizing his entire, what he said, all of chapters 1 through 8. What shall we say about these things? How do you summarize it? The whole chapters 1 through 8 is all about him glorying in the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the good news about how God will set us right. We are not right. We are not right in his sight. We're not right in ourselves and we're not right with others. And he is going to do something so we can be made right. Right in his sight, right in ourselves, right with others. And the summary is that all the things that he has done means that God is for us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
And so he's for us. He has done something so we can be made right in his sight. The punishment that we deserve was placed on his son. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us and renew us. And it shows that he is for us. And how do we know that he is for us? We don't know this because of our own reputation. It's not because when we walk in the room, people cheer. And it's not because people roll out the red carpet for us. How do we know God is for us? It's because he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So how will he not freely with him give us all things? We know that God is for us. And then notice the next thing. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring an accusation against you? That's why the ostentatious clothing and the try to posture and to preen so nobody can bring an accusation. He says, who's going to do that? And if you're honest, there's a lot of people who will, actually. You will. You'll accuse yourself. Satan will. It's one of his primary jobs. Other people might. Parents might, sister might, brother might, boss might, kids might, wife might. But in all of those things, what's the answer? The answer is not to defend myself. The answer is to look to what God has done. It is God who justifies. It is God who makes us right in his sight. It's God who's done something so we are right. So who can condemn us? A lot of people might try, but none of them will work. Why? Because of how great we are? No, it's because of what Jesus has done. It is Jesus is the one who has died and more than that was raised to the right hand of God and is interceding for us. See, our confidence is that God is for us and we know that God is for us is because what Jesus has done for us. Now, the beautiful thing, Greek is an inflected language, so you can have these phrases that get connected, and sometimes it can kind of be lost. That for us is connected with all three of those things that it says Jesus has done. So Jesus died for us. He was raised for us. He intercedes for us. And then when you know that and that gets down into your bones, you can be set free from the need of trying to have other people celebrate and praise and give you honor. And when you know that, you can be confident that nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because of what God has done to display that he is for us. And see, what the cross, when that, when, that, when that settles into our soul, it can set us free from all of these things that Jesus is condemning and critiquing here in this chapter. So each week as we come to the table, one of the reasons we come every week is just to remind ourselves of the, the beauty and the power of what he did on the cross. And you know, the problem with the Pharisees is that they were not whole people. They were divided. Who they were publicly and who they were privately were different people. They weren't whole. And one of the things that Jesus does in his gospel is his body was broken. When he, he took the, the supper, he says, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. So I will be torn apart. So all of you who are torn apart can be put back together again. And we don't have to live the fractured life. 
we can be made whole again in him. And then this cup represents his blood that's shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He says, this is what will make you right in my sight. You can receive forgiveness for your sins and be made right. So let's take a moment. Let's just ask the Lord to take that truth and press it in on our hearts. So Lord, we confess that it's so easy, so easy in so many different ways to fall into the sin of pride. But on the cross, you made yourself of no reputation. You gave up all your power. You gave up your prestige. You gave up all of your heavenly prerogatives for us. And so we ask that that truth would, would grab our hearts. We ask that we would rejoice in it more and more and then set us free from the need to worry about our own honor, to worry about our own reputation, to not be paralyzed or concerned with what people think about us or whether they approve of us, but help us to live in the life-changing, life-free reality that because of Christ, God is now for us. And this we ask in his holy name. Amen.